this episode, we've invited Dr. Pam Schwalier to speak with us about literacy support for English language learners. Dr. Schwalier is the Director of EL and Bilingual Programs at West Ottawa Public Schools in Holland, Michigan. Previously, she was the Regional English Learner Consultant in West Michigan, serving schools and districts throughout Ottawa Area ISD, Muskegon Area ISD, and Allegan Area ESA in partnership with Kent ISD. That's a mouthful. She recently completed her PhD in Educational Leadership from Western Michigan University with her research focusing on K-12 schools civil rights obligations to English learners. For Pam's full bio, check out the links connected to this podcast. Eric and I have enjoyed getting to know Dr. Schwalier over the past few years. We've both had her as a guest facilitator in our undergraduate literacy classes and have been inspired by her dedication to educational equity her passion for serving culturally and linguistically diverse students and families, and her vast experience working alongside students and educators in multiple capacities that have allowed her to become a well-respected leader in the field. This is Erica, and so Pam, welcome to the podcast. We're so honored to have you join us. For the next 20 minutes or so, we're gonna take some turns asking some questions. How does that sound? That sounds great. I'm honored to be here with you. Awesome. Let's go ahead and jump in. So first, would you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what sparked your passion for English language learners? Sure. You already covered a lot of it in that bio there. So actually Monday is my first day starting at West Ottawa Public Schools as their director of EL and bilingual programs. So starting a new adventure to support their multilingual learners there. And really my passion started um, back as a student learning Spanish as a, a second language myself through school and had some opportunity to develop that and decided I wanted to study abroad when I was in college. And I lived in Spain for a summer and getting to know the people and the language, the culture, and just seeing the world from a new perspective and to be able to build some relationships with people with different perspectives and different mindsets and obviously different language to be a person in a room where I'm the minority, where I'm the one that's struggling and reaching for words to be able to communicate what I have in my mind, but to be able to communicate that with students. It really, that's where it started. And then when I started serving as a classroom teacher, getting to know the students and the families on a really deep level and seeing some gaps in equitable opportunities really sparked a fire for using my Spanish to then serve students whose English is not their first language. So it's really evolved over the years and each new adventure and journey in my career and my life seems to continue to fuel that passion as we go. Pam, I love hearing where your passion, how it's developed and how it's come and furthered over the years. For some people, for many of our undergraduate students, even thinking about English learners is a fairly new concept for them. Maybe they have some experience with students in their own K-12 experience, but in terms of thinking about working with English learners, uh, Eric and I try to support them in their learning one way by dispelling some common myths or misconceptions about English learners. And can you talk about that a little bit in your interactions with teachers, with parents, with students? What are some common misconceptions about ELs that you've encountered over the years? Sure. In this regional capacity, I've certainly heard a lot. <laughs> and so it's always fun to be able to help spread the word of just how great it is to be multilingual and some of those assets that they bring. I would say one of the big misconceptions that I often run up against is 
most people, when they hear the term English learner, their mind immediately thinks of immigrant students or students with very emerging beginning levels of English proficiency, where actually most of our students in Michigan and across the US that are identified as English learners were born and raised in the United States. The vast majority were. And so many of our students are now long-term English learners who have been learning English ever since they entered our US schools and are maybe in secondary schools now and are quite highly proficient in English. And so I use that to leverage the fact that every student that enters our classroom is an academic English learner, that we all are growing in our language development as we grow. And so one of those misconceptions is that they don't all come to us with that very beginning level of English. They come to us fairly highly proficient, but then it's the challenge of saying, just because they have that social language that they can talk to you socially about their weekend or the things they're doing with their family, doesn't mean they also have the English proficiency to be able to act, access our academic texts and communicate in reading and writing at the level that we expect in our schools. So that's one. And I also just think to be able to add to that is um, coming at it with an assets-based mm -hmm. mindset that so many times we think our English learners are behind or lacking in some way. And I really wanna switch that narrative to just highlight what an asset it is to be multilingual in our country and in our world, because they're not behind. In many aspects, they're ahead. And it's thinking about not our, are our students ready for us or are we ready for our students? And so flipping that narrative a bit and really celebrate and honor and develop their multilingualism. If there could be a round of applause on our podcast right now, this is where we would insert it. Um, <laughs> and that's amen to all of that about seeing our students as assets and what they bring and not framing them as behind. I loved what you said about all of our students, all of us, I would argue, as well, are academic language learners. And something that Erica and I emphasize to our students is the fact that it's not like you learn to read once and then you're done with it. In fact, as texts become more complicated over the years and at the secondary level, we're all learning new things. We're all, we all continue to learn to read different kinds of texts in different disciplines and for different purposes. So I love the way you frame that. It connects really well with some of the concepts that we have talked about with our students. So building off of that and this idea of um, some of those misconceptions that you were talking about, Pam, and echoing everything that Deb said, and like, I think we have to get an applause button um, for the podcast. That'd be a lot of fun. <laughs> What is one thing that you wish teachers knew about how to support their English language learners or their English learners? Wow, that's a tough one. To narrow it down to one thing is hard, right? Um, I think one thing to just feel affirmed about is many times I get asked, how many languages do you speak? I only speak English and Spanish. And really you only need to know English to teach English that you don't have to be scared or intimidated. I guarantee you the students that are learning English feel more scared to be in your class than the other way around. And so things to just keep in mind, I don't know that I can narrow it to one, but always keeping in mind of to leverage that native language, to leverage their cultural backgrounds as they enter that room and always thinking about how can we engage them instead of having it being teacher focused or teacher led, how can we think about using student voice in the classroom. And if we think about even the timing of who's doing the most talking, not only the teachers, but our native English speakers or our English learners, 
if you time it out and just think about who's using up that airtime would be able would be helpful. So you, you had said that you said it hard to narrow it down to one. And so you just talked about having teachers having confidence if they are native English speakers that they're they are capable of teaching other students English. And you're right, anytime we're in a situation where something is new for us, probably the students are more intimidated than the teacher. But what are some of the other what are some of the other things you wish teachers would know? And you don't have to explain all of them, but just because you've got lots of experience, what are some things that teachers, like going into this new role, if you had all of your West Ottawa teachers in front of you, what are the things you would want to just say, I really want to dispel these things, not just to dispel, I want you to know these things about English learners. What would you say? I would say, first of all, that we have to honor what they bring to our classroom as unique individuals that sometimes the term English learner, we want to group our students and make some assumptions around all English learners, X, Y, and Z, where our English learners are just as unique and individual and diverse as every other student that walks in our doors. And so it's actually, I think a dangerous narrative to say there's one best way to support all English learners, but instead to say, let's learn what assets do they have, know your standards, teach to your standards, not to a curriculum or a specific pre-written text, but know your standards, know your why behind what you're teaching, know your students, what assets do they have? What is their language level? Look at some of the um, assessment data, but also that like what street level data, right? At the student level, listen to them, build those relationships. And then once your students really well, your standards, then you can start to decide which of the many different strategies, resources, opportunities for differentiation will be able to meet that specific need. So of course there's many, and I'm sure you can point them to many resources that I've created for some of those specific accommodations for students, but I wouldn't match up saying one accommodation is the perfect one for each. And I, I think the other thing is, is we have to start stop thinking about watering down and instead scaffolding, maintain that rigor of our standards, push our English learners, they can do it. We don't wanna water down our curriculum or lower our expectations. We need to be able to scaffold as teachers so they can access high level academic content. And then I think the other thing really important, knowing that you're serving and preparing our future gen ed content area teachers in many cases, is thinking about how are you equaling the playing field to be able to have both content objectives and language objectives in every class. What's your purpose in content and what's your purpose in language? And to have specific goals of what are we teaching? How are we supporting it? How are we assessing and providing feedback for both content and language? If we had that as a starting point, that would be awesome. That's a great lead in to uh, the, our next question for you, Pam, and you, you've talked about some of them in general, but what are some of the specific strategies? Uh, there's not a one size fits all. I think that's an important premise to start with, but what are some strategies that you have seen over the years secondary teachers have the most success with or the ones that perhaps are the easiest for them to hold onto and gain confidence in on their journey of learning how to better support and draw on all that their English language learners bring with them to the classroom. Can you just share a few of the ones that you have found over the years have been most successful with teachers? Sure. One of my favorites is trying to promote this idea of no more hand raising rather than pro pose one question to the whole class and wait for the few to raise their hand and respond, where we often get 
our most confident, most assertive, sometimes even the students who likely already know the answer to your question before you even asked it, and likely our native English speakers are the ones using the academic language and answering those questions. So instead, using some strategies of pose a question, give them some time to think, have them talk to a partner, maybe with a sentence frame even. And sometimes I even will say the, the taller of the two students or partner A is going to speak first and you're going to start by saying, and I'll give them a sentence frame to start their sentence. And then partner B will paraphrase what they said and then use the same frame to answer the same question. So now they've had a scaffold and time to be able to talk with each other. And then when you come back to the whole group to share and assess, now I always told my students, now it's fair game. All of you are held accountable because now it's safe. You can always share something you said, something you heard or something you thought of in that conversation. So now you can call on anyone. You, now you no longer have to ask those raised hands. You've created a safe space where even your newcomer, if you have a new student day one who walks in and only knows how to say hello in English, they can always just repeat what their partner said. So I would say that is one of the big ones. And with that no more hand raising, I always um, encourage our teachers to use a 10 to two rule of for every 10 minutes you talk, you need to make sure our students have two minutes to be able to process and use language themselves. So some of those just big routines in there to be able to pass some of the ownership to our students, give them the opportunity to use the academic language rather than us, provide some of those scaffolds in there are some of those ideal things. There's many graphic organizers building on their native language to be able to sometimes translate, hopefully more translanguaging. And I'd encourage you to look into that rather than translating, but still inviting that native language in. And of course, there's many times where you need to be able to provide differentiated texts as well, especially at that secondary level. It's a, a pretty rare day when every student in your class has the right reading level if we're all reading the same text. Mm -hmm. Pam, I love just in what you've shared, how accessible those strategies are, even just in thinking 10 to two, no more hand raising. These are things that I think any teacher, but as I think about my beginning teachers that I, I work with, this is something that they can just take a big bite of and remember, and even start observing, right, in their clinical placements, just to keep a, how much talking, student talk is there in this classroom? And when could it have been inserted? I think even brainstorming ways that could happen is, is one way for them to gain more confidence in that. Thank you so much for those great suggestions. So that leads me to coming back to the, some of the misconceptions that you talked about earlier, and then some of the things that you want teachers to know. So for those teachers that don't yet know as much as they want to know, or maybe as they need to know, what can they do to learn more? What recommendations do you have? And that is both for pre-service teachers, which would be those who aren't yet in the field teaching, but those who also have their classrooms and maybe they've been teaching two years, maybe they've been teaching 25. What would you tell a teacher when they come to you and say, Pam, I don't know enough, or I need to learn more. Where do I go? How do I learn more? What would you respond with? Yeah, absolutely. And we always love that when our teachers are hungry to learn more because it, it's fairly rare. This is great to have our institutions of higher ed purposely come together to intentionally prepare our future teachers to serve our English learners. 
but that doesn't happen everywhere. Many of our teachers enter the classroom without any experience or background serving multilingual kids. And so that's one of your greatest resources is to be able to network and seek out ways to continue learning because even once a whole bunch about English learners, there's always more to learn. There's always new tools and new strategies and the research shifts over the years. And so one way is seek out people in the field who are already doing it well, right? So we have great teacher leaders that can mentor others, go into their classrooms, spend a day shadowing an English learner in a, in a school to be able to feel what it's like, what works and what didn't work for that child. And then there's so many professional learning opportunities as well. So a training like SIAP, Sheltered Instruction Observation, Sheltered Instruction Observational Protocol. It's a mouthful. I always tell people, don't worry too much about memorizing the acronym, but the training's great. We have many trainings throughout the state. Your local ISDs would be able to help you register and find a local training. There's also virtual trainings online, and many of them are offered free, especially due to the shift to so many virtual opportunities based because of COVID. We've actually seen a huge number of online resources available. So professional organizations in the state like MABE or MITESOL, these are great professional organizations to leverage and they share many resources as well. There's some great journals and research out there if they really want to dive in. And then there's some great different books that are very teacher friendly as well. So there's many right now, a big shift on co-teaching and collaboration between our content teachers, our EL teachers, community stakeholders, our families. Maria Dove, Andrea Honigsfeld are really big names in there. Your SIOP authors are great people to lean in on. Man, we have so many. <laughs> so we have, there's just so many, there's webinars available everywhere. And so I think there's opportunities. You just have to seek them out. And as a teacher, time is always a need, right? There's never enough time to do all of the things. So prioritizing your students that are often farthest from opportunity is a great way to be able to think about how can we serve these students in ways that will meet the needs of all, rather than trying to focus in on the majority and hope it works for those farthest from opportunity. Many of the strategies that work for our English learners and students with special needs work for all students. And being able to just be a bit more intentional around those and then always you need a mentor, right? I love that. And Pam, in many ways, you are that to Erica and I, as we have learned more about how to support our pre-service teachers in their learning about English learners. So thank you for the role you've played in our own learning. And I love your comments about collaborating and finding people who are doing it well. And I know in my own journey of thinking and learning more about supporting our English learners, I've so enjoyed collaborating with Erica in reading and in talking through some of this. So love those comments. And I, I hope that our listeners are able to implement some of them. Pam, I'm going to ask you. Our mutual. I have learned a great deal from the two of you as well. Aww, that's <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Pam. I'm going to ask you this question because I love it when you talk about students 
that you've worked with or so I'm going to uh, say that you can answer in terms of a student, a secondary student or a teacher working with secondary students. But when you think about that, what's a success story that you have either experienced yourself as a teacher going back or that you have journeyed alongside of another teacher and their success with a student or students. But can you just share with just so we can put it on the ground and hear a sort of very practical example of a teacher's learning journey and then the success he or she has had with their students or your student. Awesome, okay, I wanna clarify. Do you want a, a success story of a teacher or of an English learner? You can pick. <laughs> okay, there are many and so I love that you asked this question because I think that's one of the things that we need to do a better job of across the state and the nation is just highlighting some of the success stories that are out there. I'll share one story of a very specific student of mine that I think speaks volumes around that piece of collaboration that we just talked about. Um, I had a new sixth grade student as a middle school teacher come into my ESL class and he was in one of my lower level classes where it was mostly newcomers. He was, acted perfectly fluent in English, very kind, very responsive and engaging. And I thought immediately on this first day, he must be in the wrong class. <laughs> and so I'm talking to him, I'm like, do you speak another language? And have you always lived here? And just like, it's always good as a teacher to be respectfully curious, right? Just ask questions, let them tell their own story. So I'm trying to learn more about his story. And he's, he seems very fluent. He says he's born and raised here. He's in middle school and he's in one of my beginning level classes for English. And immediately I can't change the schedule there. I bring him up front. He's helping teach the class. He's helping small groups on day one. Well, I went and talked to the counselor. We looked at his WIDA scores and well, sure enough, his WIDA scores showed that it was at the level that would be appropriate for this class. And so I'm like, something's up, let me dig into this. And the next day he came in and I had this like page that they had to fill out. It was like building their own resume where they had to write or type some of their strengths and background. And I had sentence frames. I had many supports there. And he was a totally different, he was disruptive and rude and complete, completely opposite from this fun, loving, energetic, positive child the day before. And so I'm sitting down next to him of, how can I help you? Let's try this. And so then he was telling me the answers and I was doing the writing for him. I thought, okay, at least that worked that one day. And so then I start collaborating with his other gen ed teachers and say, what's your experience with him during the day? And they all didn't see even the positive side of it. They only saw this challenging side of him. And so we worked and worked to try to collaborate. And within that first week of school, we realized and learned that this child was reading at a pre-kinder level. And he was in sixth grade. He was born and raised in the United States and was still struggling. He did not have an IEP. He was never identified for special ed and had just pretended his way through. And so when I asked him to do a task for reading and writing, you see the behavior come out as this coping mechanism for your language. And so we did decide that wasn't the right class, but I will tell you the huge success of this is we all came together, even our secretary. This child was so motivated, as long as it wasn't in front of his peers. He didn't want to know his peers to know that he could not read and write. But 
if we would support him, not in front of his peers, he was so motivated. He came and met with our secretary on his lunch willingly. He'd go get his lunch, go to the office, and she would help teach him to read. And we all just wrapped around this child and used so many different strategies. And now he's graduated, he's successful and proficient in English and reading and writing. And it's just this beautiful story to see how everyone came together to be able to recognize the uniqueness that it's pretty rare. And it just is one of those stories that reminds you to really get to know the child deeply before you make assumptions, especially when you are observing behaviors or different things. Each child has a story and it's really important to just take the time and not make assumptions and get to know our students on that individual basis. So I could go on with so many stories, successes, but there's one. Oh. But I, I love this. So I'm, I'm a parent, but I'm also a teacher educator and I love, and a former teacher, I love hearing about the ways that it was of the village that worked with this student. It wasn't just on one teacher. Um, I think sometimes teachers can forget that they're not, we're not islands. We're part of a larger whole and students out and we benefit whenever we have an opportunity to work with each other. We just have a lot more success. I think when we can do that and that's always, that's not always the case, but for sure, when you can work with other people to support a human or a common cause, I think there's a lot of great good that comes with that. So thinking about that and thinking about teachers who are going to enter the field, they're going to start there in their first classroom next month, a year from now, a couple of years from now, what recommendations or advice do you have for those new to the profession? And maybe even those first couple of years, those teachers who have just started and they've got a full career ahead. First of all, thank you and a shout out to all of these new teachers who are entering this really important field. And I will just tell all of your new teachers that it is challenging. You will have days where you wonder, why did I choose? This isn't what I thought it was, but it is so rewarding. It's hard work, but it's the right work. So as you get started, just making sure that you take care of yourself. It's really easy to pour your whole life and your whole energy into your career. You see the needs and you wanna meet them all. And I'll just tell you, you can't do it alone. You have to take care of yourself if you're going to be able to successfully help take care of others. And you have to seek others to be able to mentor you, to be able to help children together. We're all stronger together, our students, our teachers, everyone. And so I think taking care of yourself so that you have what it takes to sustain the work because it's so challenging, but also just love what you do. Make that transparent. Your students will see through anything. And so when you're authentic and you can share that passion and when you're teaching something you're not passionate about is when you have to up your game a little and try to pretend that you love it even more <laughs> because your students will be able to see that and thrive off of your energy and the passion and the interest and the joy you bring to your classroom. And so it's a continuing learning journey. So don't think you graduate and you're done and you've learned it all. I think I learn more each day now than I ever did back in my undergraduate days. I think the more I've learned, the more I've learned that I need to learn more. And so never be done learning, keep seeking out um, role models and ways to learn and, and think big. How the system is today when you walk into it doesn't have to be the way it is when you retire. And so um, always seeking out ways to do things better and be innovative and your career, you never know where you're gonna lead. I really thought forever I would be a classroom teacher and I loved it. But then I saw opportunities and I saw 
areas of need where our students really needed advocates, our teachers needed to be supported, and that really led me down this whole different journey in my career than I ever thought possible. So I think be open to taking risks and thinking about new things and new ways to support our kids and families, but it's the right career. And I'm very excited about our future in education, knowing that we have many great um, up and coming educators entering the field soon. And I'll just put in one shout out and plug become ESL certified or bilingual certified. We need you and you'll have a guaranteed job for a long time. <laughs> How could anyone say no to that, Pam, after yeah. that pep talk uh, that I wanna listen to again and again. Love how you um, have synthesized the teaching profession and who we are called to be within that profession. So thank you so much for those words. As we wrap up this podcast interview, Eric and I have a tradition to ask our guests a fun, spontaneous question. And I love how this question actually just builds on what you've been talking about. In our courses, we talk a lot about the importance of acknowledging, affirming, and building on our all of our students' out-of-school literacy practices, not just who they are in our classrooms, but also who they are at home, in various contexts, out of school. And so on that note, what is an out of school literacy practice, a sport, a hobby, something of that along those lines? What's a fun literacy practice that you participate in and that you really enjoy? Oh, I love the spontaneous question here. And it's a fun one. Well, in order to keep myself sane, with between work and a family and being mom of two kids and just finishing up some grad work, my free time is often spent running. And so I have many runner friends and it's a time to just be able to think and process and connect without the rest of the distractions. And we run a lot of miles together. In a few days, we're gonna run a full marathon. And so you get to really know these people that you run with and they really get to be a resounding board. And I think that's just so important for everyone to have people in their life to be able to connect with. And of course it connects to literacy in not only that like connection there, but I'm also a nerd and love to read. And so I'm always reading different running blogs and following different people's adventures of um, running in all sorts of cool places around this globe. and love to be able to share life passions in many areas, not, not just one. So as a fellow runner, Pam, I totally relate to that. Similarly, I enjoy running by myself and I enjoy running with people and it's a really good outlet, but I have, I have continued to learn because I didn't, I wasn't born knowing how to run or what that means or training. So we wish you the very best on your upcoming marathon. That's awesome. And we want to thank you for joining today's episode. For those of you listening in, thank you for joining us as well. Be sure to follow All About Literacy on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. We are Deb Bentinen and Erica Hamilton, and we wish you beautiful adventures ahead as we keep learning all about literacy. <laughs>